Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be the closing session. And this has been, as Jeff said, a great conference. And I think one of the reasons it's been so great, because it's been the Bible, right? It's so great to open up God's word together. Pastor Jeff asked me to preach on, as you can see, the topic, the church absent from the tribulation. And as has already been pointed out, uh, if you haven't figured this out at this point, I think you kind of missed the whole point of the conference. You don't want to be here when the tribulation comes, right? This is not something that uh, you want to go through. It's not something you want to say, well, I'm kind of curious, okay? Curiosity will kill the cat, okay? So it's not something that you want to be part of. And because of that, it's a natural question that believers have is, is it God's will for them Is it God's will for them to go through the tribulation, to go through God's wrath? And as been pointed out, the the Lamb's wrath. Are we as believers, whenever this day comes, going to go through the tribulation? And to answer that question this evening, I want to focus our thoughts on a passage in 1 Thessalonians. So take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. If you got that little handout there, you can see that we're going to kind of work it through it in two parts. We're going to first look here in a moment at an event, and this event theologians call the rapture, and we're going to work through it this way. We're going to look at the truth about the rapture, and we're going to look at the timing of the rapture. Theologians call this event the rapture, and that's what we're going to be focused on for the next few moments here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 And it's really a text that tells us about the reality of this next great event on God's prophetic calendar. You follow along with me as I read this. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as we begin looking at this paragraph, I want you to notice what Paul says there in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So clearly, Paul's talking to believers, right? He calls them brethren. He's writing to this church at Thessalonica. If you know anything about Paul's journey, he's had a very short time here at this church at Thessalonica. On his second missionary journey, he's going from Philippi down to Thessalonica. And in probably about six to eight weeks, he goes in, he shares the gospel with the Jewish people like he always did. Probably it says in Acts 17, after three Sabbaths, they, they kick him out of the synagogue for saying that Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Then he goes to the Gentiles And before long, he gets kicked out by an angry mob and he flees to Berea and then they chase him from there and he ends up down in Corinth. And so in those six to eight weeks there, 
In those six to eight weeks there, Timothy comes back to him and he gives them word of something. And this is why he's saying back to them in a letter that he writes, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Well, uninformed about what? Uninformed about some of the things that I taught you. In other words, he's saying, I want you to apply what I taught for you those six to eight weeks when you were, when I was in your midst. And what's really interesting is if you know the fact that Paul taught them for six to eight weeks, some people say up to six months, but I think it was probably a very, very short time there. I think it's interesting to realize that he's writing to them with an assumption of familiarity. And he's writing to them about the subject of Bible prophecy. I think it's important for us to think about that for a moment because Paul wasn't like so many today that really just avoid what we're talking about at this conference. In fact, these believers that Paul was writing back to, he again had only been with them this short time. And when you read First and Second Thessalonians, which he's writing from Corinth, you realize that Paul taught them about the rapture. He taught them about the day of the Lord. He taught them about the second coming of Christ, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, and the removal of the restrainer. I've heard several pastors make the observation that most people could go to church for decades now and never really hear a sermon about those topics. They may get a vague notion that Jesus is coming back and if you're with them, you win, but no detail that the scripture goes into. And if you're over the age of 40, that's especially true the younger people get. The younger that people get, they're very ignorant, they're uninformed about these topics. Yet these new believers, Paul, taught them these truths. And evidently what happened when Paul left is some of the believers there had died. And they were wondering what's going to happen to those people that died before the rapture takes place. Are they going to be second class citizens? Are they going to be disadvantaged, disadvantaged, so to speak, with the return of Christ at the rapture? So Paul writes these words really to clarify this issue in their minds Again, he says in verse 13 of that chapter, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, that they would be able to comfort one another with these words. It's in that context that Paul brings up the rapture or the teaching on the rapture. And he gives us some insight here into the timing of when the rapture is going to happen. Now, just real briefly, I want to describe the rapture for you. I want to talk again about the truth of the rapture. The rapture, technically speaking, is the catching away of those who are alive when Christ returns. But the resurrection of the dead is going to happen at the same time. So we often speak of the reality of the resurrection and the rapture almost put together. Simply stated, the rapture of the church is the intersection of two events, the resurrection of dead church age saints and the transformation of living believers. Technically speaking, the rapture has to do with those who are alive, but when the Lord comes back to catch those who are alive, there's also going to be a resurrection of the bodies of the dead church age believers. Those who Paul describes as having fallen asleep. And I think he applies... That only to the church, by the way. He doesn't apply it to Old Testament saints because it says they have died in who? Christ. It says the dead in Christ will rise. Old Testament saints are not in Christ through that baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned there by Paul in Ephesians 1 and other places. 
So I believe they will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Or you can kind of think about it this way, at the second phase of Christ's coming. The rapture is the first phase and the second coming is the second phase of his return, his second advent. But those who died during this age, from the beginning of the church at Pentecost until the rapture, their bodies are going to be raised. And he says the dead in Christ are going to rise first. So he wants us to know that the dead in Christ are not to be at any disadvantage when this rapture takes place. They're going to be raised first. And what's going to happen is Christ is going to bring with them their spirit that has gone on to be with the Lord at the time of their death. And their bodies will be raised immortal, imperishable, into incorruptible bodies, and they will be rejoined with their spirits to live out eternity with the Lord. Now over in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the other key rapture text in the New Testament, one of three here. Over in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, he tells us that all of this is going to happen really slowly, right? In the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. If you blink, you could miss it, okay? That's the idea. But when we're here in 1 Thessalonians 4, what he does is he kind of slows, you could say, the, the game film down. I was a football coach before I went to seminary. And one of the things that you have to do when you're the young guy, the new guy, is you've got to get all the films, you've got to edit all the films, and you have to break them down so that the guys who know what's going on, the head coach, can actually make a plan for that week. And you have to do it in the wee hours of the morning. And I had to do that. I had to break down the, the film at times frame by frame. That's what we see here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So there's going to be first the resurrection of the dead. Then there's going to be a rapture of the living when we, according to 1 Corinthians 15, will be changed. One commentator I read put it this way. Those who are alive at the rapture are going to get an airlift accompanied by a facelift all at the same time, okay? I wish I would have came up with that one. That's not, that wasn't me. We're going to receive those new bodies as we're caught up to be with the Lord. So that's the truth of the rapture. That's what the rapture is. It's the truth is certain. Someday, this great event is going to occur. And no one who believes the Bible can deny that. You may try to make this the second coming, but Christ is coming back here in this text. But the question then is, when is this going to happen? And there really are five main views about the timing of the rapture. If you could throw that slide, that this would be helpful. I tried to throw it on your hand out there. Five primary views today about the rapture. The first is called the pre-tribulational view, that we'll get caught up before the tribulation. Before the 70th week of Daniel. I don't think anybody's going to cheer as we go through these, okay? There's the mid-tribulational view, which usually equates the rapture with the trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. That we're, in other words, we're going to be caught up at the midpoint of the tribulation. And I think by the previous speaker, you could see that that's going to be pretty tough, right? Because he was in Revelation, that portion of Revelation there. A more recent view by Robert Van Campen and Marvin Rosendell is called the pre-wrath rapture. And it's actually growing in popularity. They don't like it to be described this way, but from a time standpoint, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a three-quarters rapture view. About five and a half years through the tribulation is when the rapture will occur. 
And then there's the post-tribune. And you can kind of think of this like as the yo-yo rapture, okay? We're going to be caught up to Jesus and meet him at the second coming and then make a quick U-turn and go back with him as he rescues Israel, as we heard about, right? He's going to come and rescue Israel from those armies as they finally believe in him at this rescue event at the second coming. So lastly, with this one more view, there's something called the partial rapture view. And by show of hands, after I explain what this is, I'm curious how many of you were taught this. This view was articulated in the mid-19th century. And it imagines that there will be multiple raptures that occur throughout the tribulation. The timing of a person's rapture based upon the depth of their obedience. In other words, there's a distinction between those who are spiritual believers and worldly believers. How many of you went to maybe a revival meeting, a service, and a preacher got up and said, if you are living in sin, even though you have been baptized, you're a believer, and Jesus comes back, you're going to be left behind. Has anybody ever heard that idea taught? That's called the, that's called the partial rapture view. Now, I'm going to argue that, that the view that's closest to the scriptures is the preacher rapture. But I do think it's important to say, I do think it's important to say that there's really no silver bullet that proves that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. What I mean is there's no Bible verse that states that the rapture happens at this moment in God's order of things. But that is not to say there are no solid arguments for this view. There are many arguments for the preacher rapture, and I, and I could mention them this evening, but we would be here for a long time. So if you're interested, um, you can look on the back part of your notes. He's already been cited this evening. Dr. John Walver, the second president of Dallas Seminary, he wrote an article. It's in a journal. It's also in a book that he wrote at the end of the book called 50 Arguments for Pre-Tribulationalism. So if you want to read every argument you could think of, you can check out that article, Okay. I think if you Google it, that title, you'll find a PDF slide deck where they have it for free if you go out there. But what I want to do this evening, what I want to do this evening is just go through 1 Thessalonians 4 and give you four simple arguments and then give you some application for our lives as we finish this evening. Four arguments that why I believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation, that the church will be absent from this day of wrath from the Lamb. And one of the arguments I would give is it's a simple one. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as it concludes in verse 18 there, it heads into chapter 5. And what happens as you read through this, as you just kind of read through it, you see a future event known as the rapture bleed into the next period, which is called the tribulation or the day of the Lord. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter 5, verse 1. Of First Thessalonians, Paul says, now as to the times, that's the idea of the calendar, and the epics, that's the events. So as to the calendar and events, believers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will literally by no means escape. Escape. So this is a very straightforward and simple point. The sequence of events as you just read through 1 Thessalonians is that you have the rapture in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and then you have the day of the Lord in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The day of the Lord, again, includes this time period called the tribulation. So that's the logical sequence there. 
Another argument from Thessalonians is the exemption from wrath. Exemption from divine wrath. Now this is interesting because all the views about the timing of the rapture agree that we are exempt from the wrath. The question is, when does the wrath start? And the way that you answer that question answers how you're going to be protected from that wrath. Post-tribbers would say that the wrath pretty much is concentrated at the end, and we're going to be preserved through that wrath on the earth. That partial rapture position I, I mentioned to you basically says if you're walking victoriously, if you're walking victoriously with the Lord, you will be exempt But if you're not, you'll have to go through, I kind of think it like a purgatory on earth for a little bit before you make it to heaven. Heaven. The other views, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, the pre-wrath, all believe that we are to be taken out when the wrath begins. There's just a different view on, again, when the wrath starts. So those who hold to the pre-trib think that the whole seven years is God's wrath. Those who hold to the mid-trib believe it's the second half, and those who hold to the pre-wrath think it's three-fourths through the tribulation. So are we going to be protected through it? Is the church going to be absent, or are we going to have to go through any portion of this? Now, we don't have time, obviously, to look in detail into everything, But I believe that the entire seven-year tribulation, or the 70th week of Daniel, is God's wrath. And that was mentioned last night, and it's been echoed this evening. God's wrath, I think, starts with the first seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6. Who's the one that opens up the seals? Who's worthy? The Lamb, right? He's opening up, and it's been put this way, and I think it's correct. It's the title deed to the earth, okay? He's coming, he's breaking the seals because of who he is. And he's taking back that which was lost in the garden. And so, if that's what the wrath is, God's wrath that's being poured out, it's not the wrath of Satan, it's not the wrath of man, it is the Lamb of God coming and bringing about cosmic warfare to take back this planet. So this entire seven year tribulation is the wrath of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that we are exempt from this wrath. Now, we're not going to be exempt from the troubles of life, but we are going to be exempt from the ultimate tribulation, this final time period. I'm sure we're familiar in this audience with the book of James. He says, count it joy, brethren, as you encounter various what? Trials or tribulations. So we're not exempt from trials and tribulations with a small t, but we are exempt from the tribulation with a capital T. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he says that we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he rescued from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, some would say that the wrath here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 is a wrath of hell, and that it's the eternal wrath. And you could make that argument because in the context of chapter 1, Paul has been talking about the salvation of the Thessalonians but the salvation from the penalty of their sins. But I think as you think through that position, and I think if you think through the overall context of the Thessalonians letter, it makes it more clear that the sense of this is the coming wrath, the coming wrath of the day of the Lord. That's interpreting it really in the overall context of this letter. And again, that, those two letters that Paul wrote there to that church. 
Paul, as he begins writing this letter to that church at Thessalonica, is pastorally showing his love for his congregation and how he appreciates their conversion, how they, in their initial testimony, turn from those vain idols, verse 9 says, and they are following not some mute, dead, dumb idols, they're following the living God. And what they're doing now is they're waiting for, for God's return as they live for him. And when he returns, he will keep them from that horrible day of wrath. We see the same emphasis over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn, turn over there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This emphasis of God coming and rescuing believers from the tribulations, you kind of think of it this way. It functions as bookends for this epistle. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he talks about them looking for the sun. And then as you get here to chapter 5 verse 1. Notice what he says, and I want you to notice something in particular here. I want you to notice the pronouns that he uses in chapter 5, starting in verse 1, in verses 2, and then the shift in verse 3, and then the shift back in verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, No, as to the times and the epics, brethren, so as the times, believers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves... Know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While, notice the shift, they are saying, peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you. You see the shift that Paul is making there, the distinction? It's even more interesting that when you look back at chapter 4 verse 17, Paul includes himself and other believers in that event of the rapture. But he excludes believers here from the day of the Lord. And you see the same thing here in chapter 5 verse 9, this careful use of language. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, some argue they try to make this the wrath of hell. But again, he's talking about the day of the Lord, as I just read for you in verses 1 through 8. That future time which includes the tribulation. So it makes sense to me in the context that we're talking about the church being absent from the wrath to come. Revelation 3.10 is another verse that supports this idea of the exemption from wrath. And this is not the Apostle Paul. This is Jesus himself speaking to this church at Philadelphia. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 it says, Because you have kept... The word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is speaking of a time of a worldwide wrath of testing that's coming upon, as it's been mentioned over and over through this conference, the earth dwellers, earth dwellers, right? Those who dwell upon the earth, unbelievers. But notice what he says here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, before you get to the future portion of this apocalypse here, of this revelation. He doesn't just say, I'll keep you from the testing. He also says, I will keep you from the hour or the time of the what? Testing the test. And the only way I know to be kept from the time or the specific hour of the test is not to be there. I really like this illustration that is in Dr. Charles Ryrie's book written about the rapture. The book is entitled, Come Quickly, Lord Jesus. Dr. Ryrie says this, quote, As a teacher, I frequently give exams. Let's suppose I now announce 
an exam that will occur on such and such a day at a regular class time. Then suppose I say I want to make a promise to the students who grade average for the semester is an A. The promise is I will keep you from the exam. So many of us, myself included, will be taking the exam, right? Now, I could keep my promise to those A students this way. I would tell them to come to the exam, pass out the exam to everyone, and give the A students a sheet containing the answers. They would take the exam and yet in reality be kept from the exam. They would live through the time but not suffer the trial. This is post-tribulationalism, protection while enduring. But if I said to the class on giving an exam next week, and I want to make a prom- the promise to all this A students that I will keep you from the hour of the exam, they would understand clearly that to be kept from the hour of test exempts them from being present during that hour. This is pre-tribulationalism. This is the meaning, Ryrie writes, of the promise of Revelation 3.10. And the promise came from the risen Savior who himself is the deliverer from the wrath that is to come. So we see here in Thessalonians, I think the order of events that supports the pre-trib rapture. We see the exemption from the wrath. A third point, and this is a very, very simple one. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, after you think about the rapture, Look at what he says. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, right? Now, if you're going to go through half or partial or three-fourths or almost all the seven years of the tribulation, how reassuring is it for you to have these words, right? I don't find that very comforting. Not at all, especially when you read about what's going on in this time period. These verses struggle to be a comfort. And that's, I think, the third reason we see that the church will be absent. One final point in favor of this idea of the pre-trib rapture. And it's the idea of imminency. Now, when we use this word imminency, we mean that Jesus could come at any time. Other prophetic events may happen before the rapture. But nothing must happen before the rapture. There's nothing that has to trigger Christ coming for his church. And imminency seems to be expressed in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where Paul says, we're waiting for his son from heaven. I like what D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary on Thessalonians, he translates it this way. He says, we're waiting up for his son from heaven. It's like when you have kids and they get their first driver's license and they're out for the night. You probably are going to be waiting up, right? Right, dad? Yeah. Waiting up for your son to come home. And maybe even when they're in their 30s, you're still waiting up, right? In that sense. But they're waiting, they're waiting and expecting to happen at any moment. And that seems to be the sense that's expressed here. Paul over in Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So imminency carries the idea of the rapture being at any moment. Dr. John Walvoord, when talking about imminency and the timing of the rapture, he makes this point. And again, he's written volumes on this topic, and you can read about this in his works. He says, if you want the simplest way to prove the pre-tribulational rapture, he said, ask someone this line of questions. Do you believe in the rapture? And if they say yes... 
Then ask them, do you believe that Jesus could come at any moment? If they say yes, then tell them you have to be pre-trib. And if you think about it, that's true, right? It's very, very true. If you're mid-trib, you can't come for three and a half years. If you're pre-wrath, it's five and a half years. Again, seven years if you're post-trib. And if you're the partial rapture of you, then you probably never really know because you don't know if you're living a holy enough life, right? Or a victorious enough life in that sense. And Dr. Walbert adds that an important implication, an important implication of this imminent event is not only could it happen at any moment, but it also must be a signless event. In other words, there aren't any signs for the rapture. The signs in Scripture, there are plenty of signs in Scripture for the second coming. Oftentimes when people get confused as they're reading passages throughout the New Testament, They'll read these passages about the signs of Christ's coming. Those are often, when you read them in context, they're talking about the second coming. But if you understand biblical prophetic calendar, you know that the rapture comes first and then the second coming comes after, right? So if the second coming appears to be near, then you know that hopefully the rapture is even closer, right? So we may have an indication there that it could be very soon. Another thing about imminency Another thing about imminency, it means that the rapture is certain, that it will occur, but it's uncertain when it will, um, but it's uncertain when it will occur. I went to a seminary in Southern California, and I was there for four years, and while I was out there, one of the things you do in seminary is you help people move, okay? Because there's guys always coming in and guys always coming out. And there are several California colloquialisms that you learn pretty fast. One of them is they put the article, the word the, in front of freeways, okay? The five, the ten, the one, right? Those kind of things, if you know what I'm talking about. They don't say I-5 or the interstate. They put the word the. Another colloquialism that I had no idea what it meant while I was moving somebody was this expression of the big one. When I was helping someone move in one time into an apartment, he said, well, it won't matter if that thing gets broken in the big scheme of things and if the big one hits my apartment, and I think he was moving into Northridge and there was an earthquake back in the 90s. So that's kind of the context there. But for those of you who don't know what that's referring to, the big one is a reference to a large future destructive earthquake that people living in California are waiting for and they are anticipating. And it's a joke, but it's also kind of a serious thing because geologists tell us that you can be certain that a massive earthquake will happen. It's only a matter of time. And so the next question is what? When? We don't know. It could be right now. It could be in a million years, if you believe we'll be here in a million years, right? Or in any time in between. That's what the rapture can be compared to. It could happen at any moment. It could happen without warning. But it's going to happen. And this is what it means is the only person, who, the only person that can ever legitimately say that Jesus comes back at any moment are those that believe in the pre-trib rapture. Now, there's an old parody that I, I, I read years ago, and to me this is kind of similar to what you read on the Babylon Bee today. So think of it in that vein, and it was by uh, Dr. Donald Ray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he, he took this old song that said, Jesus may come today. And what he does is he makes a parody out of it because he said, if you're a mid-tribber or a post-tribber, then you can't believe that Jesus could return today, and that makes sense. And some of you might know this song. It says, Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day. 
And I would see my friend, dangers and troubles would end if Jesus would come today. Glad day, glad day, it's the crowning day. I'll live for today, nor anxious be. Jesus, my Lord, I soon shall see. Glad day, glad day, is it the crowning day? Today is the idea. Barnhouse would basically say, well, if you're post-trib or mid-trib, you'd have to say, Jesus can't come today. Sad day, sad day. And I won't see my friend. Dangers and troubles won't end because Jesus can't come today. Sad day, sad day. Today is not a crowning day. I, I won't live for today and anxious I'll be. The beast and the false prophets soon I shall see. Sad day, sad day. Today is not the crowning day. And again, that does ring true when you think through the implications. So when does Christ come back? We don't know the day or the hour. But we should be ready for him to return. We could get up in the morning and we can honestly think because of the New Testament teachings that it might be today. And so we should live in light of that reality. S. Lewis Johnson put it this way several years ago. He says, we need to live looking up. We need to live looking up. We could be the generation that cheats death. Or if God wants to tarry his coming, we could be the generation that's faithful to our final breath, right? That's what we need to be. You know, one of the things that's sad to me is that believing the rapture, believing the rapture is very hopeful when you really understand not what all the Bible prophecy, conspiracy, never-ending YouTube videos say, okay? Believing the rapture is very, very hopeful and it really should impact our lives. And, and sadly, because people don't talk about this issue today, there are many believers' lives that don't understand that God really has planned out history. And it's sad because it should impact them daily. It should affect how we live our Christian life. When you understand that God has planned history, we know that history is not meaningless. We live in a day and age where people say, make your own meaning, right? Right? But that's pretty despairing because you can't control everybody else. And therefore, meaning is shot pretty fast. History is not purely what we make it. If we really want to be on the right side of history, we need to be connected to Jesus. We're not the ones we're waiting for. We're not the one to bring about ultimate hope and change. What we do is we don't look to kings. We don't look to kingdoms of man. To fix this planet, we look to the sky, we look to Christ to come and fix it. And I don't know if you realize this, but every time, every time you study passages about the rapture in Scripture, there's always practical application in those sections. And I want to leave you with this thought this evening. I've already went over my time, so I'm sorry, okay? But I just want to leave with you just some brief, very briefly, four, four practical applications or you could say influences the rapture should have on your life. And this is, I think, super clear to us that we've talked to anybody the last two years when it comes to the virus. In John 14, chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have not told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may also be. So the first thing is, it's a calming influence. It's a calming influence on us if we heed Jesus' words. 
Secondly, the rapture is a controlling influence on people that are serving their Lord on their hearts. It's a serving influence on their, the Lord of their hearts. After, <clears throat> after discussing the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, you've got the culmination in verse 58. And this verse is commonly used for, for benedictions. But it's connected again with the resurrection and the return of Christ. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in what? Vain in the Lord. The rapture should motivate us. It should energize us to be faithful till we see our Lord face to face. Number three, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 should also have a comforting Influence for sorrowing hearts. Verse 18, as I've already mentioned, says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you've ever had to stand at a cemetery somewhere and place a loved one in the ground, you've probably heard if it's a Christian funeral, 1 Thessalonians 4 read, right? And for those that believe God's word, that is a real comfort in that moment because it reassures us that Christ is coming and we're going to see them again. The final application. The final aspect, or you could say, of this practical influence the rapture should have is it also should have a cleansing influence on our hearts. The rapture is a really purifying hope. Again, 1 John 3, 3, the Apostle John tells us, and everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. An aspect, a part of the Christian life that's very important is fixing your life and your thoughts on Christ, right? And as you fix upon him, knowing that he's coming for you and he's hopefully coming soon or imminently, you can think of it this way. Jesus could really come back today. I promise you there might be some things that you do differently today, right? Both in the positive or negative. So will the church be absent from the day of wrath? Absolutely. So let's do what we need to do. Let's take advantage of every moment that the Lord gives us. With the time that we have left. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for just a wonderful day yesterday and today of teaching. We pray for just more rich and encouraging Bible teaching tomorrow. Lord, we just thank you that as we think about this world we live in, we know our nation's going from darker to dark to black, but we know that where there is ultimate darkness, there's also where the light shines. Help us to shine with the hope of your plan for the future. And Lord, help it to penetrate our souls and help us to realize we're not waiting from some event, we're waiting for a person. We're waiting for Jesus Christ so we can see him face to face and we can be with our Savior and our Lord. We commit this day to you in Jesus' name, amen.